This is Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us for our Nightlife News Breakdown is Emily Barrett. Emily's the managing editor of the Saturday paper. Emily, good evening. Welcome back to Nightlife. Good evening. Great to talk to you. Great to have you with us too. Some very interesting news coming out of the United States regarding a very prominent Australian. Well, at least former former Australian Fox Corp chairman Rupert Murdoch. He's been um, he's been questioned under oath in court in the course of a defamation action, and shock horror has acknowledged that some Fox hosts endorsed the notion that the twenty twenty U.S. presidential election was sold, was stolen. In other words, they told a lie. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I don't imagine it will take any wind out of Fox's sails. Uh, at all, but it has. Well, it has. It has mm-hmm. exposed Fox's commentators as unabashed liars, as confirmed by their chief executive, hasn't it? Yeah. No. This is really. I mean, it's startling that this is coming out at this point. It's it's come out of a deposition that um, that Dominion Voting Systems um, actually had unsealed as part of their lawsuit, and it's a one point six billion defamation suit. So it's it's pretty. Big, uh, big stakes here, um, and he's basically said that he doubted the election fraud um, claims from the very start. He said, "I would have liked to have us to have been stronger in denouncing it." Um, he's he's made what seems like pretty damning sort of statements against his hosts having really. I mean, even though they're trying to say that the hosts were taken out of context. Um, it's pretty clear that they were, you know, definitely at least sounding quite bullish and on board about Trump's claims that the uh, that the election was stolen. The thing, the thing that's just really interesting about this is the First Amendment. Um, it doesn't protect broadcasters that uh, knowingly spread lies. So it's it's looking a little bit difficult now uh, for Fox to sort of keep. Pushing this line, it's, it's unclear how they can keep doing it. So anyway, interesting stuff. Yes, I, as I say, I, I, I don't imagine it'll make any difference to Fox <laughs> and their pernicious influence on public life at all. But still, uh, you'd like to think it would change the way these hosts perform in the future. But that'd be a long uh, uh, bow to draw. Wouldn't it? I, I just think it's very interesting that it took uh, the voting systems, the voting machine operators basically in the US to uh, to bring at least some kind of chastening to bear on on Fox. I mean, it's clear that, you know, if, if he's prepared to say things like this, they don't consider it a huge threat to their business. But it is um, it is a little surprising at the very least, you know, not to anyone who actually knows how Fox operates, I suppose. But um but yeah, it's 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 hard to imagine this is going to see much chasing. I mean, the thing is that this is really yesterday's story in some ways for Fox mm, because yeah. they've moved on to you know Trump. In a way, we can tell from you know the other private uh, private messages that have been uncovered from this is that the Fox fo- the, sorry the hosts themselves were um, were kind of ridiculing Trump, um, and so you can see you know there's going to be there's going to be better. Better meet for them out there, I imagine, in terms of who they're going to be pushing for the next election. Mm. Yes, uh, yes, indeed, that's <laughs> that's right. Whether whether or not Mr. Trump will be there is another is another matter, I guess. Um, yeah, look, right. speaking of revelations under oath, the Robodebt Royal Commission uh, back here in Australia. The I know the paper's been following this very closely. Uh, it's in its final weeks, isn't it? 
Uh, yes, it is. It's got two more weeks to go. And in fact, the um, the reporting date, I think it's been extended when they actually did the report, which is from, um, it was mid-April and I think it's been pushed out to the 30th of June now of this year. Um, so, but there's still, there's a tremendous amount of detail coming out of these hearings. And, uh, and Rick Morton, our senior reporter, has been covering this absolutely tirelessly um, since the beginning. Mm. He's in fact, he's been blogging for us this week. So he's had, uh, it's, it's second to second for him these days. So he's doing a terrific job. Yeah. Um, and the revelations from it are, I mean, it's... It's it's hard to overstate how important this case really is uh, for people to appreciate what was going on behind RoboDebt. So uh, so it's it, it's quite a it's quite a service actually to try and get the to put it in the context of how the political machinery was operating at that time to really try and squeeze as much as possible out of people who were you know as as we've said many times in the past really the most vulnerable. Mm. That's right. A senior bureaucrat gave evidence today, Professor Renee Leon. Uh, She said the unlawfulness of the robo-debt scheme was a shock to her, even though she was the head of, she was the departmental secretary. She's detailed what she called a fear of a punishment culture within Australia's public culture that saw Mm -hmm. Deputy Department Secretary sacked or demoted for disagreeing with government ministers. Mm-hmm. I think that's the interesting thing that this is revealing on so many levels is the the way in which bureaucrats feel themselves uh, almost compelled to try and meet the demands of ministers. Um, and it, that's one of the things that this is laying bare really is how that how that kind of pressure operates within the bureaucracy. Um, and I think it was interesting because one of Rick's um, or just his observations today was that Renee Leon was really speaking as if the, she couldn't have waited to get this off her chest. You know, that it was, it's been such a, uh, clearly such a burden for, for people involved who had any sort of conscience around what was going on. Um, and and just the extent of it all, I think, is shocking to everyone who hears it. Yeah, she, said, she told the Royal Commission she believed that departments and secretaries who were more responsive to the Morrison government's agenda were rewarded mm-hmm. and others were punished. This is a little what she said. I thought that the abolition of my department to bring it under the Department of Social Services was probably a reward for Catherine Secretary Campbell for having been more responsive to the government than I was. That's a, I mean, it's a pretty shocking observation, declaration, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, again, it's that sense of how how the public services can become beholden in some ways to uh, to the ministers. And so it's, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that begs some deeper reform. Um, so it's, I think that testimony is very enlightening mm. and very concerning for everyone here. You wonder whether this ship has sailed, really, whether the old notion of the, of the fearlessly independent, uh, you know, public service giving advice without fear or favour has, has, right. has long gone. Yeah, that's that's definitely the thing that uh, is worrying. I mean, there's look clearly there is something that needs to be put in place to try and uh, make this kind of pressure unable to be brought to bear, so that you really are getting the best advice being delivered at the most appropriate in the most appropriate ways, um, and with some degree of transparency and accountability. Um, and you know, wait and see what kind of uh, what kind of things the report can can you know bring to bear. One of the things that, uh, I don't know, not troubles me, but uh, perhaps having seen many Royal Commissions over the years, is that it's, it's not entirely clear to me 
that anyone's going to be punished for this at any level. I mean, Mr. Tudge, the minister, Mr. Christian Porter, uh, the mm. minister, all knew about it, knew about its illegality. They knew it was illegal, didn't care about it, pushed on regardless. Uh, these senior public servants uh, knew it was illegal. They got advice to that, to the, for, right. to that uh, effect. And it's not clear that anyone's going to have to face the music on this, uh, despite the fact that we've had a Royal Commission exposing all the wrongdoings. Well, yeah, it's not clear, and it's also a bit of a concern that not only might people not be held to account for it in, in any kind of directly punishing way, but that some of the architects of that kind of, um, they call it compliance programs, um, are actually also, you know, still in the public service and still still working in areas where they could have some similar sorts of influence. I mean, the NDIS, uh, this is another story that Rick did uh, back in November, um, is now considering similar programs and um, that would be targeting people with disabilities. So not to say that that kind of thing would be replicated, but unless you have accountability in these sorts of departments and on, on, over these sorts of actions, then it really is worrying that it might be replicated elsewhere, even in a, even if it's not in such an egregious way, it's still a concern that, uh, that that's the kind of revenue raising that, um, that certain departments might be looking to try and achieve. Mm. Yeah, all right. Um, now, on to super, which has been, of course, the superannuation, which has been the uh, topic du jour of the last week and a half. The federal government's now revealed its hand on super tax changes. They haven't waited around. No, no not waiting till the budget or anything. They've decided just obviously having floated, ha- having flown the kite last week, they brought it back down to earth this week with uh, some actual proposals. They are going to double the tax on the earnings in super funds worth more than $3 million. But the plan is to double the the, the tax uh, from 15% to 30%, but uh, put off uh, in terms of its taking effect for two years. They mm-hmm. say the proposal is modest, and they say it'll only apply to about 80,000 people. Well, that's the case now. How many in the future is another matter. This is the Prime Minister announcing a plan today, basically saying, uh, nothing to see here. 99. of people with superannuation are unaffected by this reform. Under 80,000 people will be impacted by this. Importantly, this change will not occur until the 1st of July 2025. Yeah, well, you know, um, you might observe that with inflation running at its current levels, uh, in two years' time, many more than that will be affected because that's what will happen. <laughs> don't, don't start me on bracket creep. <laughs> well, because the it's not he's not indexing the three million dollars, is he? So, well, well it's, I think I think the thing here is not to forget that uh, three million is is a fairly decent amount to have in your super fund. I think at the, mo- think the, at, at the moment, of course, but in yes. fifteen years' time, maybe not so. Yeah, I think uh, the. The things that I think need to be looked into here are, you know, first of all, we do have a budget coming up in May where it's been acknowledged by all and sundry that a $37 billion budget hole is going to be a problem. Um, And there has to be ways in which the government can... Now, I'm not trying to be an apologist for any particular sort of revenue-raising measures they might choose to take, but I do think that, you know, they're kind of definitely stuck between a rock and a hard place with how they're going to resolve that. Um, and I just I think that the, the the kind of rhetoric around this is sort of shrill to say the least because it's you know if you look at the front page today on you know 
one national newspaper at least, it's you know, superannuation is being raided, you know, Labour's breaking its election promise on super, and, and even even sort of disputing in the cost of the super tax concessions. It's it's sort of you know the goodbye is the golden age of super. I saw something which is well. I mean, well, in fairness, in fairness, Labour is, and they should be held to account for this, manifestly breaking their promise. They promised that there would be. No changes to super, and they are making changes to super. I mean, they need they need to wear this, don't they? Yeah, promises and core promises. I think somebody said at one point. <laughs> this is the this is the treasurer Jim Chalmers arguing that super should not help the wealthiest Australians minimise their tax. Well, that's fair enough. Every dollar that's spent on a tax break for people with tens of millions of dollars in super is a borrowed dollar that makes the deficit bigger. Mm. Yes, the opposition, of course, is pointing to the broken promise aspect. Well, you wouldn't be surprised about that. This is the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor. This was an unambiguous commitment from the Prime Minister. He said he wouldn't raise taxes on Australian super. At the end of the day, Australian super is Australians' money. That must be the starting point here. Uh, And it is clear that Labor is prepared to break a promise to charge more tax. Yeah, it's not clear whether the government will... I mean, they have to lose some skin over this, I guess. Uh, How much, of course, is... A matter for political judgment, I suppose. Uh, even though, yeah. even though the point, the point being that now that the principle has been established, you, I think everyone should get ready to accept that there'll be more tax, more taxing of super as the years roll by. Well, yeah, and I think it's also really which promise do you elect to break under these circumstances? Because you know, we also have the debate over stage three tax cuts coming up before too long. Um, I think that you know the 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 problem they're really facing is how on earth to start getting some budget restraint at a point when we have an, an immense amount of things to afford these days. We've got uh, first of all climate change challenges, massive and insurmountable unless um, unless it's possible to draw funds from somewhere. And uh, and you know there are a, a ton of you know the NDIS different different areas of social welfare that need to be afforded. So I think. It's that it's basically trying to close that loop and trying to work out how to how to manage the you know finances in the, in the most um, equitable possible way. Um, but it's it's not going to be an envy. I mean, it's definitely not a good situation for the Labor government to be in. You know, they're coming up to the budget in May. It's understandable they they try and tackle this one now. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's they've already. I mean, it's very clear where the lines are drawn in terms of opposition to it already. So they've got no doubt about what they have to tackle. Mm. Yes, indeed. All right, Emily. Always good to talk. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.